Hey everybody, thanks for listening to the Fanzine Podcast. Just before we get started with the show, this is your host, Tony Fletcher. I want to invite you to sign up for the weekly newsletter over at tonyfletcher.substack.com. It'll give you updates on this podcast, my other podcast, all forms of recommendations with a midweek update, a long-form weekend read. Sign up is absolutely free. There are interview archives, uh, additional podcast features, and you will be able to to see uh, more of the fanzines that uh, we're talking about on this show. That's tonyfletcher.substack.com. Thanks again. Now on with the pod. It's the jamming fanzine. Fanzine. Podcast. I mean, the thing about a fanzine was holding it in your hand, right? And looking at the way it had been put together and the punk way it had been put together, quite quite frankly. And it had a staple in it, you know, and and that was that is a fanzine, right? In late nineteen seventy-seven, as a school kid in South London inspired by the DIY culture of punk, I started a music zine. I had no long-term plan and certainly no idea that over the next decade jamming would grow to become a national, even an international monthly magazine. But then you would actually go and interview Pete Townsend. It's like, what? <laughs> yeah. I mean, how do you... And McCartney. It's like, no, you're a fanzine. You're not supposed... No, that, that was a, amazing. That's what completely marked you out. And I certainly could not have imagined that in 2021, there would be a full-colour book collecting together what we have called the best of jamming, selections and stories from the fanzine that grew up 1977 to 86. You know, when I look at in, in the book, uh, the, when you talk to Madness, we'd really let our guard down a little bit there. I think that's the great thing of fanzines, that people relax a little bit more, musicians relax a little bit more, and you get a little bit more out of them, I think. For the Jamming Fanzine podcast, I'm hosting conversations with some of these former contributors, photographers, musicians, scenesters and school friends, and seeing if we can't through the rose-tinted glasses of history, offer some sort of perspective on the heady days of that heavyweight decade. It was just the joy of going, yeah, this is really good. There are some really good interviews in here. There's all sorts of bands in here. You should see it. What is it? Oh, it's a fanzine. Yeah, great. Because there are a few around, but none, obviously, that I thought was as, uh, as good as jamming. you want to buy a copy of jamming episode one from classroom to clubs we're going to do this podcast old school fanzine style a quick intro to set the scene followed by a cut and paste q and a complete with audio tippics marks and that's your lot so let's set the scene by asking the question what was it like to become a teenager in the late 1970s new wave world of central london for me it meant starting a band and a fanzine For my old school friends, Richard Hurd, John Matthews and Jenny DeHart, it meant being part of that journey. And for this first episode of the Jamming Fanzine podcast, it means me falling back into my old Cockney accent and reuniting with the three of them on Zoom to talk not just about jamming, but about the culture of the amazing times we lived through and the freedoms we took for granted. In true fanzine style, I'm going to say that pretty much everything you need to know about the conversation that follows is in the conversation that follows. Except to state that our boys' school, Archbishop Tennyson's, was up at Kennington Oval, 
Jenny's Girls School CEB was just off the Camberwell New Road. Apocalypse was the name of my old band. And the Music Machine gig you hear mentioned at the very end of the show took place in December 1980. And for what it's worth, these days I live in New York, Richard lives in Scotland and Jenny and John are still flying the flag for South London. Despite the distance, we do get to see each other. So with all that, it's time to bring back the aroma of spray paint, cow gum, tipex and nicotine and head on back to where and when it all began. Welcome everybody. It's a uh, it's a Friday evening over in England. It's a Friday afternoon here and uh, I, I figured that we might get some mileage out of having a little podcast series about the story of of jamming fanzine slash magazine and where better to start than with with my oldest friends which i mean both sort of literally and uh, literally and figuratively <laughs> and uh and hooking up uh if that's the right term with some of some of my old school friends uh who were not only around the start of the story of jamming but have all contributed to the best of jamming book in the forward one after another so i'm going to ask you each to uh to introduce yourselves and apparently I was just informed I'm the oldest person in the room right now which I think is marginal so let's go from the youngest through to uh, the, the next oldest so if you know what order that is introduce yourself maybe if you remember if your memory goes back that far when did when did we meet well I, I know I'm the youngest because I obviously look the youngest so I'll start <laughs> this one um, so I'm Richard Richard Hurd and I've known Tony I think since we were 11 when we started Archbishop Tennyson's together and I think John we probably met around the same time Jen we we uh we bumped into each other on a bus that pulled up outside the school when we were 14 on our way to France I believe so uh in May 1979 yes that's right so 1979 a good good year and very relevant for this um for this conversation so yeah great to see you all great yeah so that's Richard so who's next who's next up in age then uh that's me oh just by one day John I'm yes. one day no, younger than you. So, you keep reminding me, Jen. Oh, no. I'm Jenny, Jenny DeHart. I went to Charles Edward Brooke Grammar School for Girls, nearly a mile down the road from the boys' school where these three went. And, well, Tony I'd have met first. We didn't really know each other, but we used to get the number three bus home, both living in West Dulwich. So I kind of knew knew him by sight but we had lots of joint school productions because our schools twinned with doing a lot of stuff like the annual musical production Tony would have been in the orchestra that's my punk credibility shot immediately we should (laughs) scratch this and start all over again I was probably playing the cello as well (laughs) yeah so we properly met that day in 1979 when we all we're on a coach going to France for the annual French exchange. And we were in the fourth year. So it was, and we were still all 14 at the time. Oh no, Tony, you would have just turned 15. Yeah. And we headed off to Nantes where we were having French kids around. And it, it was wonderful. And there's a picture of it. Actually, there's two pictures of us of us there in the book. John, you're in one of those pictures as well. So when did when did we all meet, John? Same time as as Rich. I must have met you and you and Richard around about the same time when I was about 11 when we were in the same class at, uh, at school I think it's, it's kind of important to um, say that although sport was uh, obviously a you know a big thing amongst our class back then or our group 
music the thing that brought us together um for some reason there was like a you know a group of us that was just i'd, I'd been into music and, and kind of pop culture from from uh, from when i was at primary school and um i just gravitated towards like-minded people i guess like-minded kids and you and richard and lawrence weaver who's obviously got quite a big part in the story initially you you were the, the guys that i uh, gravitated towards and obviously i met jenny at the same time as, as you and rich as well in 1979 on the uh, infamous non-trip. Music was kind of everything back then. But when I when I look back on it, for me, there's just, just very much this sort of clarity that we did two years at school and then we went off and sort of punk rock happened during the summer that we went off. It had already been happening in 77. But you know, maybe maybe this is one of these false memories that you glamorize as you get older. But but for me, it did feel very much that we had this sort of six weeks off school in the summer of 77. And we suddenly all came back and there was something to bond over or indeed not to bond over if, if you were one of the sort of hard rock kids. Is that, does that seem like a fair memory, John? Yeah, I, I thought I thought we bonded over music before that. But certainly, you know, I was uh, I was quite good friends with Lawrence because of music before that. As you say, it was very much a heavy rock, prog rock kind of thing. And yeah, you're probably right. Tony, because obviously punk rock, you know, read lots about it subsequently and it happened very quickly. So it probably happened quite quickly for us as well. Yeah, I feel like I remember I remember sort of like swapping Deep Purple albums and probably talking about The Who and maybe about Thin Lizzy, which came up in conversation just just the other day with my son, funnily enough, and and things like that that we were we were trying to bond over. But but suddenly we had something real to bond over because suddenly the bands dropped a lot in age. And and admittedly, the stuff that was on top of the pots may not have been necessarily the coolest stuff around but it certainly felt that way at yeah the time. i mean i had two major influences and and you you were certainly one tony because I, I you you brought me into the jam and that really kicked it off but i i had a i still have an older brother who's just two years older than me and and he was bringing in to my world john peel on a you know on our on our radios at 10 o'clock at night every night and hanging out and listening to the new Sham 69 single or, you know, the Lurkers or something, you know, something that he promised. Because Peel always said, oh, we've got the new single of so-and-so on and we'd have to wait up all night to the end of the show to hear it. And so it was like this sort of yeah. stuff just kicked off all over the shop. And it, it was like everything came together in this in this sort of cacophony of it was hormones as well as, you know, because it was, it was such a massive social life, which was... I mean, when we were 14 and, and it all kicked off big time, particularly when that coach pulled up outside the school with all those girls on it, right? <laughs> And then you had all this shit kicking off, which was not just music. It was like, there's girls. Wow. <laughs> you know? So it was an amazing moment in time where all these things came together and all these people to, to whom this stuff was fundamental because it was fundamental to our lives, right, Jen? Absolutely. And I, I think as you guys were talking, I'm thinking I didn't get that with the girls in my class. You know, we're the same age. It wasn't there wasn't anyone who was as excited about the new music as I was. They were still very much kind of Farrah's and Farrah Fawcett haircuts, uh, which obviously I could never do. But that kind of both music for people who don't really like music. Yeah. It's the only way I can put it. It's that kind of middle of the road. Oh, yeah, that's got a catchy thing. And just that would just annoy the hell out of me. And I was top of the pops was the only thing that I had at that time before I met you guys, I think. 
because it was a destination thing for seven o'clock, seven thirty on a Thursday, that you had to watch it no matter whether you had Rene and Renata followed by, you know, the Rosillos or something. You you snatched for the Rosillos or you snatched for the jam or you'd snatch for Elvis Costello. All of that stuff, because in between there was, you know, some kind of middle of the road and pans people which you know apparently the dads liked or something <laughs> so, in their scantily clad costumes I think, the boys, the boys, I think the kids liked them as well yeah yeah yeah, yeah, the, bo- yeah. Nice and the boys you know i'm realizing i'm realizing straight away i'm not really expecting anybody under the age of about 40 to, to, to be listening to the podcast but if my if my kids if, if any of our kids were going to listen they'll be like hang on what you didn't meet girls till you were 14 15 what kind of school did you go to and the answer is we went to a sexually segregated school because that's very much how the grammar school system was and i think um without getting onto a tangent here i think uh all of us probably felt like oh we did well by getting into a grammar school which was essentially Mm. a you know still free education but somehow somehow sort of distinguish us but what came with that was was that you went to a boys school or a girls school so added to all the and they were church schools they were church schools so added to the fact that you were expected to recite Mm. the lord's prayer in the morning and sing hymns and and nominally be be christian was also this sense that you know you you had a lot of teachers who were drawn from that you had a lot of the this sort of a certain degree of repression and even sadism from some of the teachers and you were sort of sexually frustrated by the fact that, you know, you didn't mingle with the opposite sex whatsoever. So, I mean, you know, it, 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 it very doesn't take much to move into Monty Python territory, but that is what we grew up with. And, and that, that sort of also helped speak to why something like punk rock would have been so monumental because we were growing up in that society. And then all of a sudden, all of a sudden we weren't all of a sudden, you know, you had your Susie Sue's walking around and your Jordans walking around and things seemed to change. And your Debbie um, Harry. And, and your Debbie Harry. Debbie yeah. Harry. Things seemed to change, change in a, in a, in an absolute heartbeat. Two of you have copies of the uh, the book and actually mine, mine didn't arrive yet. Um, Jenny is holding hers up. Apparently it came out really well. It looks, looks lovely from here. It's, it's bigger than I thought it was going to be. They all say Jenny. <clears throat> I was waiting for that. Yeah, well, you kind of, you kind of like invited it, Jenny. I'm sorry. Walked yeah. into it. Yeah, I know. I walked into that. Um, but it's beautiful. It's absolutely beautiful and full, absolutely full of everything. And I love, you know, looking at the old covers. I still actually have some of my original jammings in this cupboard. The thing is, as well, although it's although it's sick and there's, um, you know, it's, it's going to take an eternity to read it all. Which I do intend to do. It, mm. it still has the feel of a fanzine. It does it justice. It, it does the it does the whole the whole jamming thing justice. I think it just felt right, you know. And it's, it, I mean, the thing about a fanzine was holding it in your hand, right, and looking at the way it had been put together and the and the punk way it had been put together. Quite quite frankly, and it had a staple in it, you know, and and that mm. was. That is a fanzine, right? And so jamming morphed into a magazine, right? Because it, it was done, it looked different in its later years. But if you look at that you are just holding up, Jen, it brings it all back. I mean, for those of us, for those of us that were spraying, you know, the cover of, was it number five, was it, Tony, that we sprayed? Yeah, it was number five, yeah. yeah. Maybe the smell in your bedroom of the spray paint, you know, trying to... <laughs> there you go that actually that picked that cover says 
so it's just it is jamming that that cover that to me is the front cover of the book has got the more the stylized logo etc on it but that picture of the spray paint the photocopied photo the sort of just the, it's, a, it's a fanzine feel and, and beautiful i love it i you know just flick straight to straight to, to uh, issue number five <laughs> well, one one thing I did want to try and do with the book that I think has been has been pulled off. I sort of tried to sell it to the publishers with the idea it would be a bit like one of those Christmas annuals you'd get when you bought shoot mm. or you know uh, I was thinking more of those sort of sport or the Beano or something where you'd get just a bumper issue in your Christmas stocking or you know under the bed or or under the Christmas tree. The idea that it that this is almost like one big giant issue of jamming i do have to thank the three of you for each contributing some something really really nice that we ended up putting together at the front of the book and it means a lot to me and i think it's probably relevant to the times we lived in that that we're not even the only four of us that are still close friends there's a a much wider group of uh, beyond this of of us from school and we did this without any old old boy networks any about any sort of american style high school reunions we just stayed friends all our lives i'm sure the music plays a massive, massive, massive part of that. Just before yeah. we started doing the um, started recording, John John mentioned you know the original my original partner in uh, in the fanzine uh, back before it was called Jamming, uh, and and John, I had you kind of like write the first intro piece there because sort of famously uh, or infamously to the extent anybody really does does care when I when I had this sort of like idea of starting a fanzine, I asked you to to, to do it with me because you had the coolest music taste in the class. Um, I have a, t- a particular memory of it. What's your memory of, of how that played out? I don't, I don't have a great memory of it. I must admit, you know, all, all, I, all I remember is thinking, no, I, I, I don't want to commit. <laughs> For whatever reason, I, I didn't want to commit to jamming, which was uh, obviously, uh, you know, not one of my better decisions in life, I suppose. And uh, But rather than just being negative, I do remember Tony saying, you know, Lawrence is your man. And so we're talking about Lawrence Weaver here, aren't we? Yeah, yeah, we're talking about Lawrence Weaver. You know, Lawrence is your man because Lawrence was also like a completely um, music mad kid, albeit his tastes were kind of um, of the uh, heavy metal persuasion. And, and he had, you know, quite quite long hair, at, uh, even at that age. At, what, how old must he have been? About 14, I suppose. Yeah, 13, 14. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, that's my memory is that I was reading this John Savage piece about fanzines and sounds. And 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 thought fanzine sounds like a good idea. There's nothing more than that. Nothing, no. As I wrote right at the start of the book, no plan, not of, not of any kind. Just like oh, very entrepreneurial me. Let's start a fanzine. John, you want to start the fanzine with me? Nah. Um, <laughs> ask ask Lawrence. Lawrence, you want to start very a fanzine rock, with me? It? Yeah, it's let's very do punk it. Rock. It's like he's he's done it. Someone's talking about it. I'll have a go at that. Hey, look, there's they're playing. There's a band playing. I could do that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, I, I think that's. Uh, I think that's. You know, so to really get over rich, it is. I mean, Tony, you were the one who actually, you know, obviously did it. But I think it's really important, especially at that age. You know, I think I think age was everything. It's unbelievable how much how much we were into music and how much you did when we were like 13, 14, 15. It was, it was unbelievable. And I, I think obviously it helped living in London. My kind of memories at, at, at the time are kind of, um, it was kind of parties at, week- yeah. at the weekend with girls. But then during the week, we'd be, you know, at the age of 14, I'd be with you, Tony, and with you, Rich, you know, having a beer in the marquee, watching a band on, <laughs> on, on a school night. So, so school nights were reserved for, um, for, for, for night, you know, seeing bands with, with, with the lads and then weekends with parties with, hopefully with girls and stuff. But, you know, at 14 and 15, that was a pretty, uh, 
a pretty crazy thing to be thinking back you know you were able to go to those gigs and well you all know my mum um I wasn't getting anywhere (laughs) but I think I'm just wondering how much easier access it was for boys just to be able to do that stuff I'd have I'd have loved to have been you know getting on that number three bus going up to the marquee at at 14. The thing was as well they were they were they were actually um pretty pretty violent times Uh, Mm. you know um, although we were like you know 14 15 um different kind of violence to the to the to the kind that takes place these days but um but you know gigs and football which were kind of what we, we we were into, basically. You know, there was you were pretty much guaranteed trouble. Um, and London was, you know, it was very tribal. Yeah, Everything it was, tribal, was yeah, exactly. so very tribal. And but we, we never, we never um, let that stop us. You know, I, I think um, we, mm. we still we still went to gigs. We still went all over London at all times of night, and um, you know, any day of the week in pursuit of, of music and new bands and 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 and. Jamming was, you know. I remember saying, I remember saying to you a few years ago, Tony, whether looking because you know I I was often and constantly really looking back on those years, and I remember saying to you, you know, what was it? You know, how special were those times? You know, not not just not just in our micro world, but in macro terms, how special were they? And it's bloody obvious they were massive, right? And what's interesting about our world was that we had this concentration of people like Tony and Lawrence in particular, who who really lived and breathed music. Now that didn't happen in many places, right? We were we were in a in amongst quite a special group, as evidenced by, you know, jamming, apocalypse, you know, what what went on, particularly in your world, Tony, in your career. Um, so I think we were really, really lucky. And, you know, I feel really, really fortunate to have been part of that journey. And of at the time, we were like pissing about in your bedroom, doing stuff with the magazine, playing guitar, and I was, you know, all that stuff we were doing then, you know, and you, and yeah, it was, it was incredibly precious and just like formative, you know, changed my life, absolutely shaped me as a as a person. Certainly, my my musical journey was started right there. You know, one of, one of the things that I think can be great about doing something like a jamming is the lack of planning is the fact that you just do something and it happens and you don't have a game plan. And I think that's, that's long to its credit, but running alongside that, I'd, you raised something there, Richard, I'd be interested to ask all of us, do, were we aware at the time that we were, we were in a special situation that we were really actually pretty bloody fortunate. We'd landed at the right place in the right time. We were living a life that maybe we were going to be able to bore our kids talking about 20 years, 30, 40 years down the line. No, I think I think for me, I'd, I'd always been into music, and I'd always lived in central London. So going to gigs was, you know, it wasn't enough for me just to listen to music. I had to see the bands live as well. So from that perspective, I didn't feel. I just thought it was normal. That's what not. That's what people did. You know, if you were into music like we were, forgetting our, you know, completely oblivious to how old we were. If you were into music, then. Right, you might have trouble getting at the gigs every now and again, which was a reminder. But, you know, that's what people did. So, no, I didn't feel it was that special or precious at all. I think as jamming grew, I think the first signs that I thought something felt a bit special was when your relationship mm. with Paul Weller came along. And then suddenly, like, the jam became the biggest band in, in the UK. And suddenly we were, you know, 
you know, we were meeting Paul Weller and, and, and sitting in the classroom listening to records that the jam had just recorded before they come out and stuff like that. So that, that's when it started to feel a bit, a bit special for me. You know, now looking back, I realise how lucky I was to have friends, you know, around me who were into similar, who were into music as well. And also lucky to be living in central London where bands played every night of the week. Which journey, that would be roughly the age that we, uh, that, that we met. And you write, you write a couple of really nice things in the book. And there was a third piece you wrote that I think I just couldn't, couldn't quite squeeze in there, which was about stapling and collating the fanzines on my, on my bedroom floor. I mean, we struck a friendship. All, all four of us got to go on that trip to Nantes. So did Jeff Carrigan, who sent me a lovely email today. His book just arrived and he was knocked out by it as well. Jeff was my bandmate and 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 very intrinsically involved in in, in a whole number of issues of, of the fanzine. And he wrote a few things for the book as well, just some short memories, uh, mainly about waiting for me uh, two and a half hours at a time, because that's what you did in the days before mobile phones. But... Um, but but Jenny, you kind of you know got to be part of that where we actually started putting the fanzine together on my bedroom floor because you know that was all part of saving saving money. Just talk talk about that a little bit. Just for, share for other people this fanzine culture that what 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 we actually did back then. Essentially, I would walk from my uh, mum's flat about what we lived about half a mile apart, a mile about apart, a mile. something like that. And uh, I remember the first time uh, going to yours because uh, you know we must have had some sort of conversation about well. Uh, do you want to come and help collate jamming? Well, yeah, I can collate. I didn't know I could write. I didn't know I could. I didn't know what else I could do that would that would be a contribution. But I could damn well help put the thing together and get it out there. So I remember coming round to your place, grand piano downstairs, um, and your mum had a broken leg, yeah. and she was at the grand piano, and um, just welcomed. I'm sure she just had this procession of Tony's friends going upstairs to do collating, um, and yeah, everything. So yeah, piles, just piles and piles of paper, on a relatively modest sized bedroom. I mean, it's got to be uh, yeah, you know, it's it's your obviously your bedroom, your dressing room, your schoolwork room, your boys bedrooms I, just thinking about I don't think I'd really been in one before but anyway um so <laughs> yours was the first I'm glad to have that honor <laughs> there you go and I do, but I do remember you had a midnight blue wall yeah. and there's just um one midnight blue wall and there were clippings and stuff all over it and just right okay so you say right um we start from here we we start from left to right collate all these we've got x y and z and we just kind of you set up a little production line except you're doing it on a on a bedroom floor with plimsolls and you know school books and a guitar and whatever else and you just worked and got paper cuts and and just kind of got this pile together so then it's a case of right okay how many can you take to sell at school and then I got myself a reputation at school being hanging out with all the boys and why do you think you're going to sell this here at our end of the grammar school that's another point and then um yeah so you like you kind of it's almost sale or return but not sale or return because you just try and keep them pristine so if you get if you're taking them to a gig and there we are all underage at gigs kind of shouting across noise to keep going on about you know do you want to buy a copy of jamming what's in it we'll just look at the look at the front cover oh it's got weller on the front usually useful for mods um at that point and and you try and sell it, it was 25p they'd try and give you drugs instead or you know try and barter 
in some way with beer or coins or just try and take it off you. But you're trying to keep these things pristine because, well, they're worth 25 pence each and you need to sell them. I mean, I never felt any kind of pressure. It was it was to sell as such. It was just the joy of going, yeah, this is really good. There are some really good interviews in here. There's all sorts of bands in here. You should see it. What is it? Oh, it's a fanzine. Yeah, great. Because there are a few around, but none, obviously, that I thought was as uh, as good as jamming. Yeah, what I've got in my mind, and the image I've got in my mind is, is um, and it's almost like a caricature these days, Tony. It's you with a with an Adidas bag full of full of jammings. Every day of your life, it was like every lunchtime you're on that mm. tube going up to Rough Trade or Better Badges or something, and, and you always had. You always, had, you always had a bag. We had school stuff in our bags. You had jammings, right? <laughs> I, I remember that as well, Rich. And, um, you, you know, in your, your piece in the book, that really hit home for me when I read that on um, on Tuesday or whatever, doing the uh, doing the hour lunch around the uh, the record shops, because I did that with Tony as well. And uh, that was, you know, such great memories, such great memories. Um, mm. Yeah, yeah. That, I found that quite um, quite emotional, to be honest. But yeah, yeah, I remember that, and I also remember Tony coming into uh, into school looking like shit on more than one occasion because he'd been up all night collating jammings or writing for jamming and stuff like that. Yeah, there were a couple of. I, I mean, I learned to do all nighters pretty pr- pretty early on, and they they killed me. I, I specifically remember the one for jamming six. I, mean, I just remember falling asleep on the bus, and <clears throat> I'd find I delivered the copy to the printers, and I got on the bus to come into school, and I just realised I couldn't do it. I could not do it, so I got off the bus and crossed the road and took a bus home and just went went home and went to bed. Um, mm. Obviously didn't show up at school that particular day. And, and the, the printers did a terrible job on that particular issue. I can't, this is not really the thing for you three, but that dealing with the printing was the hardest, hardest, hardest thing about the fanzine. It really wasn't till uh, Jolly took me on that, that Jamit, Jamit probably would have, would have bit the dust. I just could not find... Uh, a, a printer i had the the desire i had the determination i could even get hold of people to interview but it was probably just going to come up against that same same brick wall and that made just such a difference and that's when it probably did start getting to be like yeah let's let's go on the bus you know we can go to better badges we can stop at rough trade and if we're lucky to jammer in the studio at the townhouse that's all over west london way um the jam had a period where they almost expected teenage boys to drop by and hang out in the studio. And Richard, you you do write in there about this is jam, jumping ahead to jamming number nine, but that very hilarious interview we did with them when, uh, you know, I think for, you know, as, as often the case, three or four of us went along. Um, and I think you write in there that I went to interview the jam, Jeff, to take pictures. And what was your role again? In, in those days, and some would say ever since, I was trying to look like Weller and, and still, probably still looking like Weller now. <laughs> <laughs> got the right hair color so yeah so i just i just sat on the pool table looking cool watching you do the interview and it was like i was absolutely i i, I was probably just like a dumb zombie because it I was completely it was completely overwhelmed never been in a control room before they're my heroes there they're playing this music which just sounds like absolutely awesome and then we sit down and they're playing space invaders and pool and we're having an interview it's like Really? Is this really happening to me? It was um it was truly awesome. It should be pointed out that's the summer of 79. Yeah, we've we've, we've just turned 15. And we'd yeah, 
that's a really important point the age of you know 15 well wow. it is it is pretty remarkable although i often say to people when when the, a lot of people kind of trying to hit on the story oh you were 13 when you started this fancy i'm like yeah but really the point is i started it in 1977 if i'd been 16 in 77 i wouldn't have started the fancy in 1974 I'd have started it in 1977 as a 16-year-old. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I, I always maintain it was yeah. about the period, not, not how old we were. And the same about us going to gigs at 14 and 15. I think the reason that we went to the market, we, we would literally go home, change out of our school uniform, potentially keep our school blazers because they looked somewhat new wave, uh, if, you could, <laughs> if you could get away without putting the school crest on them, which I would try and do, and then, <laughs> you know, and then go up to the marquee to see the undertones and the Rosillos. But... That, again, is because that's what was on offer, not because we were trying to be precocious 14-year-olds. We didn't do it the year before because it wasn't on offer. Our 16, 17-year-olds mm. couldn't do it two years before because that wasn't on offer. But certainly living in London, we had that ad ad advantage, and a lot of it came for granted. And I think we may have been part of a last sort of generation of, of where parents actually let us do this stuff before, yeah. be, before to be quite honest, it, it, it started to become like, that's actually not called parenting. We might have to report the parents for it. We were just, <laughs> we were just allowed to do all of that. We just got away with it. And I think to our credit, individually, we never succumbed to darker forces. I think we were all so into music that the idea of like getting into drugs and stuff just didn't appeal. The odd pint of beer was enough for us, basically. We didn't go out to get drunk. You'd go, all right, I'll have a drink. And it was, you know, you'd have two drinks a week or something. Yeah. It was about the excitement of seeing the band, seeing your heroes or dis or seeing a new band, whoever they were, just being able to get out and see bands and come out sweaty and exhilarated going wow i think you know we're having a wonderful time talking about going to gigs and i i feel very fortunate about that era but it might not be so much for me to say and, and maybe i'd like to ask you to say jamming was far from the only fanzine around certainly actually during the mod revival and for a period there were just dozens hundreds can can any of you kind of just talk about the relevance of fanzines uh, to that period of time pre-internet magazines were everything and um even before punk, we, we lived by the weeklies. We used to read sounds. Yeah, actually, in school, in class, we used to gather around sounds and the enemy and the melody maker and um, and pour over them, really, uh, over news and over um, over interviews. But they did feel very much, you know, at a higher level than the, 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 the writers didn't seem part of our... They're obviously older. It just felt as if they were older and more experienced. Um, and when fanzines came along, people used to sell your fanzines at, at gigs and going into record shops. There were fanzines everywhere. You'd meet people that did fanzines. And it was it was basically the connection of, you know, you realise that these people were or maybe a little bit older, more often than not, but they were actually, you know, they were your peers. And it was a really good way of not only finding out information about the bands that you liked, but also connecting with bands that you didn't know about, and and you know, and like-minded people, and it was it was the way it was the way everyone beyond our little clique at school communicated. So yeah, hugely important. I just think it just the way that the interviews were written in fanzines. Obviously, it's a you know, there seemed to be something coming off the page from the bands who really were much more frank about themselves and what they liked and funny as well. Um, yeah. Much funny than you get. It, it just seemed more honest. You get a more honest response um, in an interview question that came from a fanzine rather than some 
muso journalist that was a, a proper grown-up. The bands trusted the, the fanzine writers a lot more than maybe they, you know, mm. the, the, the actual journals and the weeklies. They knew it was coming from a fan place. Exactly. You know, these these kids are really interested in our music. And that's, I mean, this is, you know, my adult head looking back on um, some of the things. And I still have um, original jammings that I've looked at from time to time. And you just go, there's an irreverence and stuff that you just, you you wouldn't get in a proper news music newspaper because it wasn't about them trying to sell records necessarily. It was about trying to reach an audience who might like their music. And they had their manifesto, whichever way it was. They had what they had to offer. And to be able to speak to, you know, the 15, 14, 15, 16-year-old kids who were interviewing them, who were bold enough to go, actually, would you do an interview for my fanzine? Yeah, all right, come down the studio. I'll see you after a gig. Are you sure you're supposed to be in here? Because, you know, does does your mum know? Oh, no, my mum's waiting outside in the car for me again. <laughs> um, that kind of thing. But I think that you just get this honesty that wasn't available not saying that they were lying in the other but it was it was much more kind of a corporate thing that yeah and record companies were involved and all that sort of stuff and i think something that uh, you just got me thinking about there uh, jenny we were touching previously very much on the jam and i recognize that that's a, a common common thread we all had we loved the band then they became the biggest band and we were close to them which is a a pretty unique scenario all around but john and i in 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 particular john you and i have always had like you know very 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 wide tastes i think we've loved like like a massive variety of music and um you know jamming also wrote about the fall and it also wrote about like killing joke and delta five and screedy polity and all kinds of things and i've often looked back on that jamming number nine where there's the jam interview but there's also the fall interview and I really, really liked that interview with the four, which actually was done at their record company, but you know, it was an indie, an indie label. And there's something about that 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 particular interview that that speaks to what you just mentioned, Jenny. This sort of ir- the irreverence, and the fact that Marky e. Smith liked it enough that he wrote to me afterwards and said, you know, that that it just sort of was that honestly, just really enjoyed reading it, and it even made him rethink his attitude towards the jam being in the same. The same issue and i was always kind of quite proud that when you looked at the, the readers charts in jamming that, that the jam and the fall and joy division would share sort of number one spots and i always like you know that that sort of no subtitles for us that i put in um when i was putting this 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 book together i was kind of i was kind of like yeah i'm not quite sure where that came from i think there was some lyric that the fall had that made me think of that and so i put in a subtitle no subtitles for us it just seemed very very full and the, the sort of the irreverence and the fact that groups would agree to interviews. I always liked that there was there was this different sort of structure to, to the fans. And Jenny is holding up copies of this book that I don't yet have, but can, but uh, I, I am familiar with the pages. It looks it looks very nice in print. All credit to Omnibus for doing such a great job with this. Anyway, did that make any sense to you? What I'm saying there about all of that? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I, I would I would say. Definitely. What I was going to say was the relevance and the significance of fanzines. I mean, the clues in the name, of course, as you said, Jen, but the the significance is it, it was such a complementary aspect of punk, right? Because it, it was about just doing it, just getting on and doing it and and just be very front, front, front and centre with it and no bullshit. It was just this is the way it is. And it gave 
other people an outlet and an inlet to to that punk new wave music right there was those that wanted to be in the bands and could be in the bands and just did it others that were fans others that wrote about it others that read about it you know it was all just part of that that pre-internet world john you mentioned right that yeah. we didn't have we couldn't just look it up online and, and, and delve in it was just a, a a really important part of the culture of punk and new wave and, and i do i do remember um fanzines you know around that time being of hugely varying quality you know you, you had kind of fanzines that correct me if i'm wrong tony but in the city i remember reading in the city which was quite a um you know quite a almost a magazine although it, it you know it was a fanzine you know and then you'd go in rough trade and you'd have like <laughs> just one page you know <laughs> with, with, with you know an interview with with someone that you know that was just like four sentences or whatever. I, 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 that's kind of my memories of it. Lots of, lots, of, um, lots of variety and lots of varying degrees of quality. Yeah, and I think that's true of the indie scene in general. You, know, you get all these indie records. I was lucky enough to start getting sent them or I'd go into Rough Trade and, and they were kind enough to, to start giving me records. You know, this, this would happen and they would be of enormous, very quiet. Actually, Richard, I can't let this go without, I have, I have a distinct memory. It might be down the line a little bit probably to when we were about 16 maybe I'd left school and you would come around to my to me at lunchtime because you could meet your girlfriend from so I think she would take a break from her school and you'd come around and spend your lunch hours with me and I do remember I think it was killing joke but it could have been anything I remember playing a record and you you you're saying something to me like, God, you do half listen to some shit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah that'd probably be. That sounds like a very heard statement. <laughs> yes, indeed. My objective views were quite clear. I was, uh, wasn't, I wasn't beating about the bush. <laughs> Actually, I thought I was a little bit more delicate than that. I was obviously feeling very um, self-assured at that point. <laughs> Well, you were you were in general, and 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 while we're while we're being all sentimental and stuff here, and 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 some of this overlaps to the uh, the memoir that all three of you are are featured in as well by your real names, uh, the uh, boy about town. I mean, you know, Richard, you did coin that phrase that that, that really summed me up um, in in the proverbial nutshell. T- Tony, for you, Tony, for you, school is just an occupational oh, yeah. hazard of being young. Yeah, yeah. yeah it was very right. very yeah, poetic, yeah. actually. You kind of maybe yeah. hit on the wrong career. You should be a lyricist. But actually, it. When you think about it, you were you were ahead of your time, and I'm not trying to just big you up here, uh, but it's you you uh, you were able to sort of somehow through your maturity and your vision that you know this was just we just did this stuff, and we're like, well, certainly from my point of view, you know, we were good mates. I listened to you, and I looked at what you were doing and thought, you know what, he's doing all right, and we were just getting on with life. And yeah. you were the guy with you were the guy with the Adidas bag full of jammies getting on the tube at lunchtime. We were doing we were going to cricket, right? Or we were, you know, or we were sitting in the common room. And so you were that that phrase, you know, it, it was actually just an occupational hazard. You just you just worked around it, right? You just worked around school and just did what you were doing. You had your career going. Absolutely that, you know, and I still think from time to time, how did this boy have the confidence just to to just go well but to actually start to get somewhere and for for adults to respond positively and you just seem to always have this thing of 
well, I've got an interview with so-and-so. Oh, do you want to come along? Well, you, you know, you find yourself just sort of tagging along as Tony's mate at times, which is, yeah, absolutely bloody cool because you got to see people. But where did where did you find the confidence to do that at such a young age? That has always intrigued me. You know, it's, it's really strange. I was actually talking to, about this to my, my, my younger son, literally, this morning. The, the self-promotion is just something that you have to do. But it's okay to be shy about self-promotion. You just have to do it. And the strange thing is, I, I, I feel like nobody believes this. I, I would go into record shops and stand there for like 10 minutes trying to work up the confidence to go up to the counter and say, and, and open up that Adidas bag and say, I do a fanzine. Would you sell a copy? And 40 years down the line, those same people who worked at the counters, because funny enough, some of them went not, no, not surprisingly, went on to become musicians and have contributed to the book, have, have, have thought of me as a supremely confident kid. And so there's this real like dichotomy. I remember just like quaking in my boots half the time, working up the confidence. But somehow I would be like, well, I came this far. There's no point walking into this shop and then backing out at the last moment. I'd better go up and, and, and do this. So it's a very, very, very strange thing. I think I just realized that if you're going to put a fan team together, you have no choice but to sell it. So you're going to just have to work up the confidence. And sometimes at gigs, I, I wouldn't have, to, I would just realize this gig is I'm not going to sell a, a fountain here. I'd ask two people and they'd tell me the F off and I'd be like, it's not the right place. Mm. Other gigs, you'd start and somebody would go, yeah, I'll buy a copy. And then people would come up to you and you could afford to be confident. It's a very, very strange one. When I look back on that, I did not actually feel as confident as I realized I must have come across. Maybe unlike the, um, unlike the kind of music thing where, you know, it would have happened anyway, maybe age was a factor there. And I think one thing is that genuinely, um, older people yeah i think really and true you have to be a little bit of a dickhead to to turn your back on a on a young kid who who comes up with a fanzine and wants a, a five minutes of your time especially with such an angelic face oh well, thank you jenny is that <laughs> my current face or the one i had back then the one you had back then ah it was worth a try wasn't it <laughs> well well, it was yeah, it was it was worth trying, but I still feel that way, and I feel that way. I'm fortunate enough to work with some kids on music now, and I just feel like that that's a that's a big part of what 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 you give back. You know, it's 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 important to do that mm. to the extent that sometimes we had rock stars would give us interviews. I think they thought, well, I used to knock on somebody's door as well and hope for the time of day. And I think it's really important that that people do give a little bit back. Now we could obviously we've done this many a time over over pints when when, when we managed to get together. Um, on trips we could talk about this ad infinitum we're gonna to have to wrap it up but I, th I thought i'd maybe ask for just a couple of favorite memories maybe is there a specific gig that each of you remember perhaps to root it in the in the 70s before we would have turned maybe 16 is there like a just a, a specific gig that you look back on and go wow i managed to get to that gig the one gig that i think we were all at was the jam at the music machine which and one we were all back but which we're, one we're, well, I only remember one, and I, and I remember we were all there, I think, and Mark Blakemore was there. There was a whole bunch of guys from school there, and we were backstage, Tony, and I had my best jam shoes, my short short jeans and my white socks, and and I, it was the whole part. And I, and I remember being in the dressing room, and Foxton was moaning about not being able to go for a shit without anyone following him around. <laughs> But I remember being pretty pissed. And then they played, they started playing in the city about three or four songs in. 
I was sort of standing back because you remember the music machine was quite a bit of a pit, wasn't it, that you used to go into. And it, that was it. That was me down the front for the rest of the gig. It was just absolute. It always springs to mind just because of the opening chords of In the City. Well, I'm thinking there's the two I have, again, because the jam was so central to, you know, they were the band I've seen most in my life, right? And the jam at the Rainbow, when Apocalypse got their first support slot, what I remember is is obviously Apocalypse more for having things thrown at them from the audience. <laughs> toilet rolls. I mean, I don't think there were anything more, you know, harmful than than toilet rolls. But think, just thinking, this is, this is November 1980, um, the rainbow, you just turned 16 and you're on stage supporting the jam. I think Rich had kind of honorary band manager status that yeah, night. I was, I was, I was yeah. a tour manager yeah. at that point. And I tour manager. was blagging away in the, in the back door, in the, in the stage door, if you remember, because they, they wouldn't let us all in because we came mob-handed. <laughs> mob-handed. Um, so that. Um, but personally, well, I don't think any of uh, – I didn't go with any of you guys. I think I went with Paul and Craig from around the corner. Seeing the jam at Brixton and – at what was called the Fair Deal, but now the Academy, you know, been going to gigs there forever and in its other guises as a cinema, as a small child. But the um, getting down to the front and that hot, sweaty, and it's mainly boys at a, at a jam gig. You know, the girls are smattered about, but it is a quite a male-dominated thing. And also there weren't many black girls in the audience. I was obviously just kind of people, oh, but we're like finding it strange that I knew all the words to stuff. But anyway, but getting right down to the front, just wiggling your way all the way down to the front. You're in the front, crush, feel the crush of the crowd behind you, waiting for the band to come on. John Weller comes on and introduces, here we are, this is a jam. I'm not, obviously not a terribly good impression, but straight on. And they just stride on stage, strike up Strange Town. My feet did not touch the ground, swayed from one side of the stage to the other, being held up by your shoulders, singing for all you worth, thinking, will my feet ever touch the ground again? And having the best time of my life. <laughs> and that was it. Just sweaty, mascara everywhere, hair frizzed out to nothing. But you come out of there and it is just the most exhilarating. Oh, my God. That's one of my favourite. What about you, John? I, I think two gigs stand out, both at the marquee. Special memories of a special place, really. I think that was amazing, the, you know, the, the one in Wardour Street. But um, seeing the jam there, when it was the John's boys, yeah, uh, that was pretty special, you know, talking to Paul Weller before they went on stage and stuff. And then, the, you know, the chaos that ensued afterwards, and having to uh, kind of escape from the West End, you know, terrible. And also, um, and go, and go, then going back to what you were saying, Tony, about, you know, having varied musical tastes when we went to see the Human League at the Marquee. You know, and I remember I was dressed as a mod. I used to love the Human League and, and Spiz, who played as well. And I was dressed as a mod and I remember getting some punks through a bottle at us in Wardour Street. I remember that. But then just going into the Marquee, which I was familiar with, and then just seeing something completely different, you know, like the Human League playing synthesizers and having the, the projection and Phil Oakey looking like an alien 
you know, I, I remember being there with you and, um, yeah, two very special gigs. Yeah, the marquee was special because it was the one place that would let us in. I think that's really important to note. We we occasionally went further afield and, we're, and it was just like, no, this is a pub. You're not 18. You can't get in. Um, I do remember one time, and it may have been actually even at the John's Boys gig, that the manager of the marquee came over. We bought pints and he came over and took the pints out of our hands. And he took me to a corner and went, I have a catch you drinking here again, underage. You know, you're you're banned from here. You're like, you're welcome here. Do not embarrass me like this. And he, he was really stern because he was like, we let you we let you lot into the gigs. Don't blow it. Don't blow it. And I think that was like really, really important because we could get into the marquee and, and we knew we could. So we could afford to buy tickets. It was legal to be, you know, to be able to go to the marquee. That was really, really important. I think the one extra one I would throw in that is I just have particularly fond memories of the Rosillos and the undertones from what would have been about October 78. Uh, I was never, never been as, as crushed in all my life as I was for that Rosillo's show. I was was begging to be pulled out of the crowd and on the front row and nobody would pull me out of the crowd. And, and the fact that we, that we, a couple of us walked backstage after the undertones gig or before the undertones gig, and they showed us how to play, showed me how to play teenage kicks on the guitar. And that's, that's, that to me just sums up the whole fanzine DIY era. The undertones looked about a year older than us because they were from, Northern Ireland would probably look more fashionable than them. They were happy to show us how to play the song. They'd just been on top of the pops like that night or the night before or whatever. The Rosillos were on top of the pops. It was just, uh, it was just, you know, it's just beautiful, beautiful memories. And of course, both those record sounds, so Teenage Kick still sounds great. First Rosillos album still sounds great. So that's, that's, that's something I particularly cling to as a, as a moment of great fortune. But all of it, I just feel very fortunate, really. I just feel yeah. incredibly fortunate to be part of that period. Mm. Remember being in the marquee, and the, the marquee had, you know, the black, the black, the black stone walls, and 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 every time I went there, there was sweat dripping, yeah. and you know, the, the walls, yeah. you know, the, the the floor was obviously um very sticky and very slippery with beer, but the walls were just as slippery. It was yeah. just, you know, and you tried not to get pushed up against the wall in the marquee. Yeah. And it's nice that we can think back to that because John, you're you're absolutely right about the John's Boys gig and the violence that followed. If I'm if I'm not wrong, because this might be a great place to actually leave this. Did you not escape that night? You you made your way around uh, out that night with uh, Guy Pratt. Is that right? Yeah, I did indeed. Yeah, yeah. Obviously, I met I met Guy that night. Yeah, uh, you. I think he was in Speedball at the time. Yeah, and, he was. Yeah, and he uh, he lived in Waterloo, so um, you know, not far from where I lived, is at the borough at the time. So, uh, so yeah, we, we literally, we took turns in, because uh, when we came out, Waldorf Street was all cordoned off and stuff. So we literally, you know, we were running up to the next, or kind of sneaking up to the next corner. And then one of us had looked around the corner and go, all clear. And then like, it was like, you know, it's like a cartoon. But yeah, yeah. So yeah, we worked our way through Covent Garden and got home. Yeah, the nice way to leave that is guy's going to take part in a in a in one of these podcasts himself, actually, and maybe maybe the, maybe the next one up. So I'll have a chance to uh, maybe, maybe <laughs> pick, up, pick up where we left off, which might be a perfect place, perfect place to leave this. Um, the journey was for me was a collective journey. I mean, I know people associate me with the fanzine, but I'm so glad you all wrote something for the book. It, it was it was collective. And, Thanks for asking us. Yeah, it, it, it really yeah, was. Absolutely. It was it was part of a culture. And I'm so I'm so glad that we not only took that journey together, but that uh, we, we, we were all still alive and that you were all kind enough to write something for the book. And I, I think what you wrote yeah. will resonate as well. So thank you for that. To actually have this tome compendium come out, it kind of confirms what we knew all along that it. Yeah, it was a special time. Very precious, Tony. Precious times. 
This episode of the Jamming Fanzine podcast was produced by Tony Fletcher. Greg Morton provided editing assistance and designed the logo. The Jamming Fanzine podcast theme was written, recorded and produced by Noel Fletcher. The book The Best of Jamming, Selections and Stories from the Fanzine that Grew Up, 1977-86, to is published by Omnibus Press and is available right now across Europe and then in the rest of the world from the 2nd of December 2021. For more information, please visit tonyfletcher.net or omnibuspress.com. Check the show notes for more details. And if you like what you hear, please hit subscribe, leave a review, a rating or share. We'll be back on the podcast stands in two weeks, bringing back that new optimism of the 80s.